Hey, thank you so much for checking out today's video. I'm Pastor Matt, this is Pastor Adrienne, and we pray this message blesses you and encourages you all throughout your week. Absolutely. For any more information on how to be praying with us or to become a part of our community or to give, please head on over to takeovergr.com. One second. So, um, I, I don't want to spend any time with small talk. I don't want to come up here and crack a joke so we can get into the sermon. I don't think that's appropriate after this worship that we just had. I, I just want to get right to the message. Um, I just feel like we need to posture our hearts to recreate the atmosphere of the early church where, you know, I feel like a lot of Christians say like, you know, maybe I would be that obedient or maybe I would be that faithful or maybe I would be that blown away by God if he still did the same things today that he was in the early church. Like it was easy for them to die for their faith because they were doing crazy miracles. It, it was easy for them to preach a great gospel message because they lived with Jesus before he left. But the, the real reason why we don't have that same presence and anointing in our churches today isn't for any of those reasons. It's because we've grown accustomed to doing church ourselves. And we've put ourselves in the place of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as you start to do that, the first thing that leaves is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the first product of preaching that you lose is the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that you can learn something from my message if the Holy Spirit isn't necessarily there, but you can't receive the reproduction of the anointing that the Holy Spirit has done in me if I put myself in front of him. So I'm gonna give a sermon called the mandate of faith. And the reason I use the, the term mandate, that's a cool graphic. I love it, Matt, that's awesome, Pastor Matt. Um, the reason I use the, the phrase mandate is because this is, this is not a please do this, this is not a recommendation. Having faith and a bold faith and a consistent faith and a strong faith is a requirement of being a man or woman of God. And when you give a sermon on faith and hope like I'm about to in this culture and in America, if you guys completely miss everything I say, your life will still be pretty good because we're in America. But I kind of want us to use our imagination right now, and I, and I want us to picture as if we were the early church, and if you go out these doors after I preach, it might be the last time you were ever in this building. The mandate of faith is a message that for early believers and many believers around the world right now, if they don't get this revelation, then they're gonna die living in hopelessness and fear. They're gonna die that way, soon. 
if we don't get this revelation, we're just gonna live a more stressed out life. So I want us to raise the standard right now. I, I was listening to a sermon by Heidi Baker. She was, she's from America, but she does ministry in Mozambique and she's leading a team of pastors and they share the gospel and then these people who don't like Jesus, they come in and they try to kill everybody. So they have to run. And these pastors are sharing the gospel and they're with their families and they're with their kids and they just have to run. And then they, they meet up somewhere for, they're, they're trying to get the pastors together. Heidi is waiting in their secret spot for the pastors to come together and, and figure out who's alive. And one of the pastors shows up and he's got one of his kids. And they say, good, your, your son is okay. What about your other son? Well, I saw him run into the woods the opposite direction of me and I, I couldn't get to him in time. So I don't, I don't know where he is. Well, well what about your daughter? This, this is a reality. And, and they say, well, I actually know where she is. I saw her get executed before I ran. This is a reality right now of what's going on around the world. And yet these people, when they gather together, they still have hope and they still have faith. And if they ever find themselves outside of that area, then they cry and worship and pray. Literally, this is Heidi's words, they cry, worship, and pray until they find themselves laughing uncontrollably, and then they go and share the gospel again. Wow, this, is, this is the gospel. Yeah. This is what Jesus has done for us. It's worthy of giving your life. Yeah. It's worthy of it. So, so just essentially what I want to say is that Christianity isn't a lifestyle. It's not. Christianity is life, and the second option is death and hell. We don't live our lives with, with our Christian faith lumped into it and fitting in there. We live our lives to Jesus, and he determines the shape that our life takes. So the more accurate way of putting it isn't let me fit in my Christian faith with my life. It's Lord, let me give my life to you, Jesus. And then maybe you can lump in some regular people things here and there. That's how I like to think of it. This is our life. And if the Christian life is to be lived to the fullest, then it has to be a life of prayer. And I'm gonna raise the standard for us tonight, not out of condemnation. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm not gonna tell you anything that I, wouldn't, that I wouldn't tell myself. And I'm gonna try to be very encouraging. But I think our standard of what a life of prayer is, is actually too low. Because when we say I live a life of prayer, we think of time, devotion, reading the word and praising God. And those are all requirements for living a life of prayer. It's true. But scripture's definition of a life of prayer includes all those things, but it also includes a life of continual answers to prayer. We need to be in that place of devotion, of worship, 
and of abiding in the word of God and it shifts your heart into alignment with his will and it produces a product of faith that will create a prayer that gets results. So you might be in a stage right now where technically you are living a life of prayer because you're putting the time in and you're abiding in his word. But I, I just feel that Jesus's standard that he lays out for what a life of prayer is, is a life that receives continual consistent answers from God. Whether it's instant, whether it's revelation, whether it's this, that intercession for somebody across the world, there needs to be a shift that takes place when we pray. So when I talk about faith and how to get faith, I have to talk about hope and perseverance. So this sermon here is actually more about hope and perseverance because that's what creates faith. We need to have the perseverance to take God up on his word and to hold him true to his promises. But I feel like many Christians live a powerless life because they think God isn't that committed to answering their prayers. When in reality, he's the one that made the promise and his word never returns void and it never contradicts. So believe me when I tell you, he's much more committed to answering prayers than you are to getting them answered by him. John 14, 13 through 14 says, I will do whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says this, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Number one, he loves answers because it glorifies the Father. John 15, seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. If you abide in him and you're continually transformed, you will receive consistent answers to prayer. That's his promise. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that remains so that whatever you ask the father in my name, I will do it. You asking the father in Jesus name is what gives the answer, which is what is the fruit in this context. It's a promise, it's a promise. John 16, 23, at that time you will ask me nothing. I tell you the solemn truth, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it so that your joy may be full. How many of you knew that Jesus says, ask whatever you want in my name and I will do it? that many times this is within two chapters and the last verse boggles my mind he says ask and you will receive it so that your joy may be full this is how much stock he's putting in answers he's saying that your joy can't possibly reach its fullness unless you receive the response that he intends you to receive. We all know that Jesus wants us to be full of joy, full of peace, full of hope, full of love, but yet he's making it very hard on us right here by making a standard that if you aren't continually receiving the things that you ask for in his name that are in alignment with his will, you can't have the fullness of joy that he intends. It's, it's a, to me, that's a mandate. I believe the strongest men and women in all of history are those who lived at the end of themselves, 
so they could begin each day at the finished work of the cross. That's where you're supposed to start. The strongest men and women are those who lean on the promises of God until it is birthed forth into their experience. You have to live into the promises of God and lean into it. The inconsistent men and women of faith, which are the most common, are those who lean excuse me, are those who attempt to pair their flawed experience with the word and promise of God. The word and promise of God does not want to be married and interpreted by your experience. It wants your experience to build an endurance that produces a greater hope. It does not want the word to be filtered through your experience. It wants your experience to to build up a greater endurance to believe the promise. The substance of faith that moves mountains has to be a faith that is undefiled. It has withstood the pollution of the carnal mind and of the hopeless human experience. This perfect faith lives in the realm of inheritance and promise, and it lives in the realm of accessing what was purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's not only for those that have the calling of a pastor, prophet, apostle, evangelist. It's, this is something available to every Christian, because if you're a Christian, you're only that by the blood of Jesus. And if you have enough access to the blood to get saved, it also means that you're lumped into the promise of having the ability to get consistent answered prayer. This is something that you really can't shy away from. And again, you can't access this realm by marrying experience with the word. It always pollutes your interpretation and it always leads to powerlessness and confusion. I'm gonna do... This is a a, a teaching, not really a preaching. So I'm going to be looking at my notes quite quite a bit. Just bear with me. Um, Jesus says we can ask him anything in his name and he will do it. And he also says that a mustard seed of faith is enough to move mountains. And I, I actually have this little freckle on my hand and it's like the exact size of a mustard seed. This is my continual reminder that if I have faith that's this big, I know you guys can't see it, it it's enough to move a mountain. So it's, it's really interesting to me that Jesus makes it seem easy when he says it, but it's really hard when we do it. So we're in this hard place where it's, it's simple and easy when he says it, but it's hard to do it and we're stuck here and we can't get the fullness of joy unless our life aligns with his word and his promises become a reality. So why would he give us a task that's so hard to complete? So the questions we have to answer is what is faith and how do I attain it? How do we get this substance of faith? And then this next one is where we have to do some self-evaluation. You need to ask yourself this when you get home is, does it require me changing my life and is it worth it? We know from Hebrews 11 verse 1 that faith is the substance of things hoped for. 
Your uh, translations might say faith is an evidence, assurance, settled confidence, or a conviction of things that are not yet seen. But just for the sake of trying to better understand this teaching, I'm going to refer to faith as a substance tonight. And this, this mandate of faith is spoken of so many times in Scripture. And Jesus tells us to ask anything. He's actually requesting his followers to produce a fruit that is drastically, radically different than any type of fruit that any other person could possibly produce. We see a lot of Christians, and you can't really tell the difference between them and a non-believer. And usually that's in regards to obedience and holiness. And that's true. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of Christians that aren't holy. But there needs to be another separator from us and non-Christians. And it needs to be us producing the radical fruit of answered prayer. That anybody outside the will of God and outside the covering of the blood of the Lamb, it is impossible for them to counterfeit or try to reproduce the fruit that you're producing because your fruit only comes by the power of God. They can counterfeit good behavior. They can counterfeit generosity. They cannot counterfeit a moved mountain. And this is something that is supposed to be consistent for us. The book of James gives a mandate to be faithful and in my opinion, to be legendary when it talks about Elijah, it says in the end of book of James that Elijah was just a man, but he prayed. Why would it bring up Elijah unless it was to the purpose of reproducing mighty men and women after himself? It's an encouragement. It's not a slap in the face of, hey guys, I know you have Jesus, you're living life with him, but there was this guy in the Old Testament who's doing it better than you were. He didn't even have the Holy Spirit inside him and he's still doing more more miracles. He's still more faithful. No, it's an encouragement. That's why they bring up these legends in the New Testament. Elijah was a man who was at the end of himself. I'm convinced that the majority of the time he was at the end of his own words. So then the only words that he did choose to say were the words God wanted him to say. And then that's what releases anointing That's what releases the miraculous because the words you choose to say are the will of God. And God does not want you constantly speaking out his will without any power to prove what he means. So if you decide to be at the end of yourself like Elijah was, and you decide to only speak the truth of scripture, then God is actually going to look at you and say, this guy is saying everything I'm saying if I don't start to answer his prayers and back up the truth that he's preaching, then I'm going to start to look like a hypocrite. You need to be so at the end of yourself that it almost forces God's hand to move and to move that mountain, to answer that prayer. And yet we've been doubting God for so long and we've been so frustrated at the lack of answers when we really haven't positioned ourselves in a place that gets him to release his power. So the scripture I want to read tonight is Romans chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 11. 
And we're gonna read through all the way to chapter five, verse five. Um, so we're kind of starting pretty much in the middle of a paragraph, but I wanna explain the, the context of Romans chapter four. It's the apostle Paul is talking about justification and how it's by faith alone. And the reason he's talking about this is because he's trying to explain that the Gentiles are justified by faith, therefore they can become Christians just like the Jews can. He's saying that the thing that gets you into heaven, the thing that gets the blood of the lamb on you, the thing that gives you access to what was made available is faith. So whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you can have it because anybody can have faith. So that's the context of chapter four. But during his commentary and breakdown on the story of Abraham and Sarah, he actually kind of gives us a blueprint on how to believe and take hold of the promises of God. So within this greater context of justification, there's these gems of how to have hope, perseverance, and faith. So that's kind of what we're trying to dig out of, of this chapter right here. Um, verse 11, Romans chapter four, verse 11, it says, it's talking about Abraham. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Bear with me on this. All done with that word. <laughs> for the promise, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Chapter five, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm going to pray uh, just really quick before I attempt to break down the perfect word of God. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these, these mighty men and women of the faith that we can look to to encourage us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit in this room. We thank you for your character, your faithfulness. You're just so good all the time. Lord, would you cut us deep today? Would you remove any hopelessness and fear and doubt that we've been living with and making agreement with? God, would you convict each one of us, but also be our comforter today? And would you give us the revelation of your word? And would you give me an anointing to speak it clearly, God? In Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible says that faith is a substance, but this substance is created through hope. So essentially, faith is a realization of something that's been developed. In order to realize it, we have to live in the realm of hope and perseverance, and the result will be a release of faith that glorifies God. Now I'm going to break down how to practically get faith. This is not going to be an all-encompassing teaching on faith. We just don't have the time. I don't have the wisdom. I'm going to break it down really practically. But when I do this, I am in no way trying to trick us into thinking that it's easy to have faith. Because there's a difference between something that's easy to understand and something that's easy to walk out. The concept of faith and how to get it is actually pretty easy to understand. But I'm not trying to trick us into thinking that we should just be these fearless warriors all the time. Um, essentially what I'm trying to do is give you some simple weapons that are easy to wield so then you can go fight a battle that's really hard to win. And another note is... Just because I'm trying to explain this practically, it doesn't mean it's not the most supernatural thing that you'll ever encounter. The supernatural can be very practical. Very practical. So, since faith is the substance and it's the evidence, what this tells me is that faith is actually the last step in the unseen realm but it is the first step into breaking something forth into the scene realm. So for a miracle to happen that we can witness, faith was the first step that we actually saw. It was me praying the prayer, right? But in the spirit, faith was actually the last step because the only reason I had the courage to step and to say that word and pray that prayer is because I've already been through a continual process of dwelling in God's word, trusting his promises, and having the perseverance to fight off the lies of enemy. 
of the enemy so that I could be at the conclusion of faith. So that's kind of the main point of the teaching today is that if we really want to be equipped in our faith and see God move in the miraculous, we need to stop treating faith like it's the first step. When you treat faith like it's the first step, you're going to trick yourself into thinking that you can just willy-nilly run around, say random things, and God's going to keep doing it. No. Faith is a result of living and abiding under the word and the will. It's not just some random, you know, you're just shooting without aiming. No, this is precise. And it's built and developed. Consistent answers is built and developed. So faith is not tangible, but yet it's a substance. And the only way that could possibly make sense is if it was the result of something that's also not tangible. It's a result of hope. So I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to go through kind of an, an, an analogy and I need you guys to bear with me. I believe that scripturally hope is the mother of faith. I also believe scripturally that perseverance is the father of faith. It raises it. Hope is what births faith. Perseverance is the father that nurtures it and cares for it. Just as a husband worked together to raise a child whose heart is after God, who, who's pure and holy and of good character, the intention of raising up a child is so that when you release him or her to the outside world, they are fully equipped to take on the calling of God on their life. That is the exact same task that hope and perseverance have. They are raising up a product of faith so that when it's time for it to move out, it is fully equipped to fulfill the calling and destiny of God on its life. And its destiny is being your answered prayer. Hope and perseverance create and refine this product. The calling is the answer to prayer. But the thing that's tough about this is this marriage and this life of the family of hope, perseverance, and faith, that whole growth process is actually taking place inside the human heart. And when I say inside the human heart, I'm talking about your soul. And I talk about the soul literally every time I do a teaching. When I say soul, scripturally, it's referring to your mind, your will, and your emotions. I believe that the faith that you produce, it's a reflection of the things that have been dwelling within your heart. Your faith is a byproduct of what your soul has chosen to agree on. So before I talk about the role of your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions, before I talk about the role in getting answered prayer, I, I need to talk about the Holy Spirit and the authority that we have in Christ Jesus because we have our soul, we have our spirit, and obviously we have the Holy Spirit. So if I talk about how to get answered prayer, but I don't talk about authority and the Holy Spirit, then what am I doing? 
Every believer technically has more authority than Satan and his armies. But does every believer have more power than Satan? Not even close. How can it be true that we have more authority than Satan, but we have less power? I'm hoping to clear up something for us that will kind of give us answers why we feel powerless at times, why we feel like we're just getting beat downs from Satan consistently. It's because there is a massive difference between the authority of those who are in Christ Jesus and the power of Satan. Authority, simply put, is your right to execute. It is your right. Authority is what gives your power permission to be established. Power is simply ability or strength. So Satan has a lot of power, but he has no rights before God. But since we are co-laborers with God, with the task of establishing his kingdom over the earth, Satan has usurped much of the authority of mankind by our disobedience and rebellion. So since we are a complete product in the eyes of Christ Jesus and we have all the authority and we're seated with him in heavenly places, this gives us much more authority than Satan. But since we're undergoing the sanctification process and we slip up and we rebel against God, each time you do that, Satan has the right to usurp your authority, take it upon himself, and inflict his power on your life. So in other words, if you were as perfect as Jesus, Satan would only really have the rights to tempt you, like we saw, and to harass you by manipulating other people, governments, other spirits. So Satan, the only thing he could really do if you were perfect was attack. But since we aren't, since we sin, not only does he have the right to try to engage you, he actually has access to you oftentimes because of rebellion. So your power as a Christian, it really only extends as far as the authority of Christ that you've chosen to establish over your life. So essentially your authority is your potential and your power is attempting to meet your level of authority. So your authority and your power are supposed to be together, but since we have been rebellious, our authority is here and our power is oftentimes here. Have you ever heard the term, Jesus might be your savior, but have you made him your Lord? This is kind of what that's talking about because it's, it's referring to the idea that you've accepted Christ's sacrifice for you, which means you made him your savior, but you're refusing to accept his standard over your life, which is making him your Lord. The result of this, it's, it's powerlessness. The result is powerlessness. Refusing to accept Jesus as Lord over your life is how you end up being a powerless Christian. You have all the authority as the saint next to you, but none of it is established because Jesus has been knocking at the door of your heart and you've refused to let him in. So one thing I wanna clear up again is technically, as a Christian, you have all the rights to have a prayer that moves a mountain. 
You have all the rights and it may happen. So whether you're a good Christian, bad Christian, whatever, you've been backsliding for a long time, you still have the potential to throw up a prayer and it moves a mountain. But when it comes to being a man or woman of prayer who receives consistent answers to God, you must be someone who's had the full authority established so then the power can follow behind it. This is the key. And it has to take place in your heart. So the Holy Spirit is within you. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And the faith within him is perfect. But God chooses to co-labor with humans in order to get answered prayer. So the perfect faith within the Holy Spirit is filtered through your soul. And what happens oftentimes is that when this faith is filtered through you, it comes out as a damaged, defiled, and hopeless substance that does little to change your life, change the people's lives around you, and honestly, it does very little to glorify God. This is the scary and sad thing about co-laboring, is that if, if God wanted to, he could do it just like that. But he's choosing to co-labor with his people and when Jesus says, remain in me and I in you, he's saying that his words, in order for the power to be consistently released, it must be filtered through your soul, transform your soul, so that when you say it, you actually mean it, and then he can actually follow behind it. This is the beauty of God's design for humanity. We are meant to have dominion over the earth and we are called to become a pure and spotless bride preparing for his return. But it is impossible to fulfill this mandate unless we live a life of continual answered prayer. So he offers the promises, he offers the authority, he moves in power, but the level in which he does this is largely determined by the level of dominion you've given him in your soul. So now that we understand a little bit more about authority and power, do we? Is that simple enough? I'm gonna try to get really in depth on the mind of a Christian. And again, this is not an all encompassing teaching on faith and how to get faith. I'm really just trying to pinpoint a couple things and make it practical so we can have the power of God released in our lives. I believe that the imagination and the subconscious are two things in the Christian that need to be redeemed and wielded in order to continue in hope and establish a life of answered prayer. So before I go forward in teaching on imagination, we just gotta clear up that word. Because for me, at least, when I thought of the word imagination, I thought that's the part of my mind where I think about things that aren't real. Well, that's not true. Your imagination is just the part of your mind where you think on things that simply haven't happened yet. So it can be real things, it can be fake things, it can be all kinds of things. And then your subconscious plays a massive role, but the main point that I'm trying to get through here is the subconscious is where the strongholds in your mind dwell. It's where your logical thoughts dwell. So your imagination and your subconscious are kind of opposites. Your imagination needs to be refined and redeemed to hold the dreams of God. 
It's where dreams and visions are born. Your subconscious is where your dreams and ideas are imprinted once they've been agreed upon within your heart. So your imagination is the house for them. And then once they dwell there and they've dwelt in you, it's then imprinted into your mind so it can become a stronghold. And this is what Jesus means when he says, let my word abide in you and transform you. It means it's gone from a theory, an idea, something you've just dwelt on and imagined, and then it goes into a logical thing that when I pray for this person, God is gonna move. The promises of God become your stronghold when they pass from your imagination into your subconscious. Many believers have completely turned off their imagination for the sake of maturity or they've turned it off for the sake of keeping themselves from getting hurt. They don't want to imagine what a life of answered prayer would look like because they might start to get some joy from that image and then it might not happen. And they'll be very disappointed in God. So the logical response to that would be to turn off your imagination. And then the other side is many believers just turn it off because you're over-religious and you think that wild dreams of God just aren't a thing that obedient Christians have. It's immature. Well, I don't have to explain why that's a lie. But what I will say is if you don't dream and hope about what your answered prayer might look like, then the prayer that you want to get answered will never have the faith behind it that it needs in order to break forth. So how many Christians are refusing to dream, refusing to hope, and then they blame God for the lack of answered prayer? There's, there's none of this dreaming, none of this dwelling going on, but just because they said the word that was in scripture, they think they've done their part. So then they feel they have the right to be upset at God when really he's called you to live in this. Your imagination is required to participate if you are to maintain hope. Hope is simply believing, dwelling, and waiting in joyful anticipation of something you haven't seen yet. We need to redeem our imaginations and prepare them to hold the dreams of God. The desires that God has for you, the words he wants to give you, the dreams and promises he's made for you, they are so big that at first, they really can only fit in your spirit and your imagination. They must then live there and be refined and birthed by hope and perseverance so then they can somewhat be whittled down into a logical thing that becomes a stronghold in your subconscious. This is a process that the Lord wants to do within us. <clears throat> I'm gonna to flip to Romans four really quick here because I like, I like breaking down scripture from scripture, not from a screen. We see this process going on between Abraham and Sarah where it says in verse 18, it says against hope, Abraham believed in hope with the result that he became the father of many nations. So essentially God's promise 
that you will be the father of many nations. It was such a lofty idea and promise that it could only fit into the part of Abraham that, that he, he could only receive it and the only thing he could do with it at that time is hope that it comes true. And he chose to grasp to it so tightly against his bodily afflictions, which was his age, against his wife's bodily afflictions. He was grasping so tightly onto the promise of God in hope that it says he believed against hope so that he became the father of many nations according to the pronouncement. So what I wanna explain is that your imagination is oftentimes a battlefield but you choose the winner. So the Holy Spirit and the word of God, it's obviously undefeated. Obviously God always reigns supreme and he's always victorious and he's mighty. But because he chooses to co-labor with us, the promises of God that dwell within your imagination are battling against the lofty arguments from the enemy and against the circumstances you've been through. So if it was just a fight between those two and I had nothing to do with it, obviously God would win every time. But since he loves us and chooses us to establish his dominion over the earth, he's saying, you choose the winner. Here's my promise, here's my word, here's my idea, think on that, dwell on that, and then Satan says, here's my idea, here's how many times you've prayed that and it didn't work, here's all the things you've been through, you should choose my side as the winner instead. And then you're sitting there dwelling, choosing what to hope on, and if you latch onto the specific promise and abide in it within your heart, then it will then make it through the narrow gate and enter into your subconscious and become a stronghold. This is how a wild promise becomes logic within your mind. How many of us in this room, just a couple years ago, there's things in the Bible that we couldn't comprehend. And now we're sitting here praying together. And if, if God doesn't move like that, we'd be surprised. If, if we have worship and the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, we are genuinely surprised because it happens every time. But if you ask me five years ago and say, does the Holy Spirit show up to every worship service? I'd say no, because God's mysterious and I'd blame him for all of it, right? But we've chosen to dwell and abide and dream about what it would look like for this to break forth. And we did it so much that it became logic and it became expectation. I'm telling you that for Abraham and Sarah, it became logic and expectation before it happened. And this is how it should be for each one of us. So something that happens in us is that we don't fight the battle very well in our imagination. So instead of choosing a clear winner, we call a tie between God and Satan, and then we let that be implanted into our hearts. This is how you become double-minded. This is how you become inconsistent in your prayer. 
You say, here's the promise of God, but here's my experience. Instead of trusting and leaning in the promise of God, I'm actually gonna let them both win and I'm gonna set them both right here. That's why you're not getting consistent answers. You don't fully believe the promise of God. This battle needs to be won completely. Completely. There can't be a marriage. There can't be a tie. It's just not how it works in order to live a life of answered prayer. Without being weak in faith, he considered his own body as dead. So what this teaches me is that having faith and having hope is not the same as denying reality. There, there are those charismatic Christians who like the doctor tells them that they're sick and then here's all the proof that they are sick and then they just say, that's not true. Well, it is true. But the thing is, there is a greater diagnosis that you can lean into. So you don't have to deny reality in order for your reality to be changed. If I'm sick, I don't really have to pretend I'm not sick. It would actually be a much greater testimony if I said, man, I am sick, but guess what? God's gonna get rid of it. Because if you say you're not sick and God heals it, you really can't share the testimony without admitting you were sick. This is what Abraham was doing. He considered his own body as dead, right? He did not waver in unbelief. So you can acknowledge your current state, but if it makes you waver in your belief, then you are actually drawing the tie and this is when your heart becomes tainted and the substance of faith becomes defiled. It will not sprout, it will not grow, it will not be released in its fullness if it is defiled by doubt. He did not waver in unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that God, that what God promised he was able to do. So indeed it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. We can't read that verse and think it just applies to Abraham. This verse raises the standard for all of us. This is where it becomes a mandate. It said, so indeed it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Because he believed in this promise, we can then believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that can be credited to us as righteousness. So that's the main lesson there. But what this also teaches about faith is that taking God up on his promises and agreeing with his word, it's not some recommendation and it's not some bonus thing to do. It's righteousness. It's righteousness. We've treated the full atonement, everything that Jesus made available and paid for, we treat it like it's some bonus thing if we access all of it. It's not a bonus thing, it's righteousness. It's righteousness. What if we raise the standard for ourselves today? That a life of prayer isn't simply defined by the time you put in. It's also defined by the answers you get. 
And a life of righteousness isn't simply defined by your sins being forgiven. It's also defined by you believing in all of his promises. I know it's tough. It was credited to him as righteousness. And it was also for our sake. If the worship team, if you guys could make your way up here. Chapter five, it says in the NET that I got, it's the expectation of justification. So chapter five is almost breaking down step by step what Abraham and Sarah in chapter four did, what it looks like for you, what it looks like in the spirit, what it means for us. It says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So it's just stating again, believing in his promises is an act of righteousness. And I wanna clarify again, even if his promise doesn't specifically pertain to your salvation and you getting to heaven, it is still a mandate from God to believe it. That is righteousness. We can't live lives where we just believe the promise that we're going to heaven. We can't, we can't even live the lives that just believe the promise that we have victory over sin. That's a huge thing to believe. That's amazing. I, I challenge us today. Can we take God up on all of his promises, specifically the one that you haven't seen the answer for yet and that you've been praying for for a long time? Because God is looking down and he's saying, that is them walking in righteousness. Now I wanna eliminate some fears that we have of taking God up on his promises. Like I, talk, I talked about earlier, Christians turn off their imagination because they don't want to imagine the answered prayer and then for it to not happen and then they'll be disappointed. But actually that's unscriptural because it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it also says that hope does not disappoint. So I believe wholeheartedly that God's word always comes to pass if we do our part. But even if he didn't do his part, which he always will, there's still the promise that you won't even be disappointed because in the process of believing his promise, you are abiding in him in righteousness, in peace, in hope. It's this wild thing that you might be praying for this specific thing, but while you're seeking it, 
you're actually just walking with God. And that's amazing. So his invitation to get you to believe a wild promise, it's not just to the end of seeing that prayer break forth, it's to the end of him having relationship with you. That's his goal. Through him, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Abraham and Sarah were trying and trying and trying. They had so many nights where they were probably crying, probably angry, very frustrated. I can't imagine their heartbreak and I can't imagine how many prayers it took. But I'm choosing to believe chapter five, that when you take God up on his promises in faith, it establishes you in righteousness it puts you in the place of peace. It gives you access into his grace. And in that place, it's a place of rejoicing. And it's a place of continual hope in God's glory and of God's glory. God is burdened that he has so many people who follow him in faithful obedience in regards to abstaining from sin but he doesn't have many believers who follow him in faithful obedience when it comes to his blessings and his promises. He's saying it right here. No matter how hard your life is and how rough it's been and the things you've seen, this place that you're at and the place of the answer, the gap is actually a place of rejoicing. And when, when it goes to verse three, chapter five, verse three, it says not only this, so it's making a little, it's, it's kind of making a separator. Verses one through three, three talks about our standing in his promise. And it's a place of hope and rejoicing. But what it goes on to explain in verse three through five is that because of your standing, you actually become undefeated to the things and the sufferings that you'll face in the meantime. Because it says, in the place of standing, you rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, you will also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out to in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So he's inviting you to a place of right standing and peace and rejoicing. And he's giving you a confirmation that this spot that you're in is actually undefeated against the sufferings and the trials of life. And not only will those not have victory over you, they'll actually be used to encourage you. I talked about the battlefield of the imagination where Satan is saying, remember this? What about this idea? Satan's coming up with his own theology against God's. But God is saying, when you stand in this spot, those lies that Satan tells you, not only will you not listen to them, they'll actually be used to give encouragement to you and produce a greater hope. Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You stay in this realm 
of hoping that Abraham did. And that is what allows the Holy Spirit to continually pour love into your heart. You latching on to the promise is what gives him permission to pour out love. And if you choose not to grab hold of his promise because you're scared it won't happen, then you're actually limiting the Holy Spirit's ability to pour love into your heart. So essentially a result of not taking God up on his promises is a hard, cold heart that will be full of fear and bitterness. But he's saying, if you just trust my promise, no matter how hard it is to believe, you are giving me permission to pour my love out onto your heart. So the last thing I kind of want to end with as we go into our last song, just with our hearts postured to repent for the ways that we haven't believed in God and agreed with God and make a commitment to go forward believing on his promises. I, I have a feeling that each one of us in here can probably think of an area of our lives where we haven't latched on to hope and we haven't fought for it. But I believe the Lord is calling us to a place where we can be a child in regards to our hope. We can be so optimistic and we can just take him up on his word. He just wants you to be a little kid again where he can come up to you and say, I will do this. And you, you believe it, no questions asked but he also understands that you're growing. You've seen things, you've done things. The devil has attacked you. This is where maturity comes in. Maturity doesn't mean you act less like a child in regards to hope. Maturity means you act more like a child in regards to hope, but you also act more like a lion in regards to perseverance. Maturity in the faith is fighting to keep your childhood alive. And you have to fight and claw. You have to be persistent. And it takes maturity. So my prayer for us today is that God makes us little kids again, but also lions. So can I just pray that over you guys as we get into worship? Jesus, God, would you stir our hearts with just a, a, with confirmation of the words that you've spoken? But Lord, would you give us a hopeful optimism that Lord, in, instead of remembering the promise you've given and actually being frustrated and saying, oh man, there's that promise again that didn't happen. It's kind of frustrating when I'm reminded about it. Lord, would you give us that same promise right now, but allow us to hear it like it's the first time we heard it. Allow us to hear it like we're a child who's just received a promise from his father that he's gonna take so much joy in receiving. Let us accept your promises like children who have a great father, because that is exactly what we are. 
And Lord, let us fight against the lofty arguments of the enemy that are going to attack during this next song and the lies from our experiences that say, I have a greater, more powerful word than the one God gave you. Lord, would you allow us to fight against that, Lord, and allow us to reach the full stature of maturity in the faith so that we can be a, a body of believers who receive consistent answers because we live from the realm of hope and perseverance and abiding in the promises of God. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.